Okay, so we're joined now by a senior lecturer in social policy, Palash Kamrutsaman. Thank you very much for for joining us, Palash. And it was we, we only met for the first time this week, so we've already had a, an interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, thank, thanks and welcome to the university. Cause you've not been here that long, I don't think. No, um, I have joined in like in you know, 2017, and thanks for having me here. So just before we go into uh, more, more more specifics about yourself, tell us a little bit about uh, if you would about you and your background and sort of what led you in to doing what you do. Um, thank you um, for asking this. So I come from a multidisciplinary background. So I combine degrees in sociology and social policy that I have a PhD from University of Liverpool. And I also have like you no know, degrees in anthropology and um, my master's and bachelor's. So after I finished my master's degree in anthropology, um, I wanted to study policy because in my view, like you know, most policymakers or policy scholars, at least where I come from, my country of origin, Bangladesh, it was like you know, mainly the economists who are making policies. And I really wanted to study policy because I think like in you know, an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary perspective of understanding policy, for example, social science from sociological and anthropological perspective probably would do me some good. So that was the motivation I did a PhD in sociology and social policy. And um, that was at the University of Liverpool. So when I was, I finished my PhD in Liverpool, I took up a job at the University of Leicester. And at the same time, I was a guest lecturer at the University of Nottingham as a part-timer. Hmm. And um, after that, I was briefly, I went back to Bangladesh briefly for a year where I was um, an assistant professor for development studies in a Bangladeshi university. And then again, I moved back to UK and I worked for the University of Bath in the International Development Group. So I taught there for a good few years. And um, then this opportunity came to be like, you know, be to demonstrate my research more, I think, at the University of South Wales. Just, so, just to take I, things in a, sli a slightly more personal direction, I, I, I wonder when you when you were a youngster when you when you were you know younger and uh, growing up could you tell us a little bit about that kind of wh wh where you grew up and where this sense of uh you know kind of social awareness maybe came from it could be it's like so i grew up like you know um old part of dhaka so dhaka is the capital of bangladesh so i grew up in dhaka which is like in a a fascinating place to grow up in many ways and um, it was hugely crowded but it's still there were like you know, so many elements of like you know what you call like you know traditional societies the values the norms the cultures right mm -hmm. and um i was probably not aware like you know that my upbringing has actually shaped my worldview in many ways because laterly when i was studying anthropology which was like you know a subject of great interest I could relate with everyday reality because I grew up by seeing these traditional values. I grew up by seeing like, you know, the cordiality among among neighbors. Mm -hmm. I grew up seeing like, you know, different factions are fighting for different interests, like, you know. Um, we do not probably have it here because we have progressed in this part of Europe, like, you know, societally, in a socially much made the progress, but still there were like, you know, different form of factions, like, you know, which is probably a little traditional that people will fight with each other like you know, with traditional 
arms and weapons kind of stuff, especially among the youngsters. And um, sports was a huge part of the huge part of life. Um, but then again, like you know, rapidly urbanization was taking place, industrialization and urbanization, not only just because a heavily crowded country itself and the place being the capital of Bangladesh, there were so many people and the resources were scarce. So you can see the competition of life impacted social relationships in many different ways. Not just I'm mentioning that in a, there was corruption, but there were so many informality going on from people to make like, in th make life like, you know, to, to make a survival, to make an earning, right? Mm. So yeah, I mean, I have grew up, I, I grew up with friends or the peers, like, you know, so we come from a reasonably like, you know, middle-class background or middle-middle-class background. So my friends were like, you know, coming from really, really rich people. And I was also like, you know, I also grew up with like, you know, children who were coming from extremely poor groups. But that did not affect my childhood. But actually, like, you know, when I was studying and when I reflect now, when I look back, I think that has shaped my worldview in many ways because it was an absolute honor and privilege to see many different sides of life, how people like, you know, make a living and what strategies and age, how people use their agency to survive in a society. So uh, just briefly, I wonder if you've ever written anything about your kind of, you know, where where you're, how you've become, I mean, I mean uh, academically, you know, what, what you do, what you're about, how your childhood and upbringing and experiences has, has shaped your direction. Um, I have not written anything about it and it did not cross my mind, maybe like you know, once or twice. And then I felt maybe I'm not in a position to write an auto autobiography or autoethnography kind of stuff just yet. Yeah, it would, it could, but it has definitely like it, it is reflected in my writing. Yeah, sure. Sometime I can give you an example, like you know, when I was the guest lecture in Nottingham, so I was given that opportunity to simply break my PhD because they needed a specialist course at the time. So I was offered by the head of school at that moment that can you not just teach like you know, what you have done about your PhD. So that was a great opportunity, like I said. So I broke down my PhD into a course. So at the end of the course, a young guy came up to me and they said like, you know, this was a fantastic experience. I wanted, well, I wanted to be like you. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't want to be like me. You want to be like yourself so that you, know, you can become you. But I can tell you like, you know, what has driven me so that like, you know, what drive, what has driven me, that has made me. So if you can find your drive, that will probably like you know, even more useful for the way you feel passionate about the subject that you, know, you want to do something for the global community. So I said like, look, it is interesting that I saw how people's relationship affect social living. And it was important that, you know, because when I finished my master's, I grew up in a city. I, even though Bangladesh has like in you know, this reputation of like in you know, a rural country, like, you know, it was like, you know, still like in a large part of the country is like, you know, um, comprised of like, in you know, many villages, like in you know, traditional villages, very like in you know, what you call, um, what you tend to say, like, you know, you know, the exotic villages, like in you know, exotic places, like it's amazing, extraordinary scenes are there. So I first went back to village after my master's and then I interacted with some farmers. And I said, look, in Bangladesh, I do not know if you know, in Bangladesh that up to the university level, 
education is free. So I got my master's degrees and the tuition fee was per month equivalent of 10 pence per, per wow. 10 pence per British value, right? So, so 10 pence equivalent of like a you know, tuition fee. That was my basis of like an education. Yeah. And because I got first class both in my both in the honors in my honors and in my masters, I think that enabled me to get a scholarship and um, scholarship at the University of Liverpool. So there was like in you know, a few nights and I still have this like, you know, that I'm not saying it's nightmare. I think sometimes that in you know, imagine if a farmer ever comes to me and say, look, you got education from our money almost free. You went to these places, what you have done for us. This drives me, motivates me in many ways. That's why my writing tries to talk, at least my writing, I try to talk about like, you know, I promote the agenda of like you know, the people, poor people's perspective. Policymaking often are told in a way that, you know, these are for the poor people, but often these are made by the elites. Often they ignore the poor people, put the poor people at the very last. These elitist perspective often, maybe even unconsciously, give benefits to the elites more than the like in you know, a poor. They just give something very incremental to the poor, right? Hmm. So I have been driven by this that in, in my writing, I'll try my best to raise the agenda that actually serve the interest of the poor people, okay. or in terms of development, the intended beneficiaries. Yeah. This was my message to that student that said, like, look, I am driven by these. Yeah. You need to find your drive that, you know, yeah. what drives you, not that you want to be like me or anybody else. So okay. that is reflected. But to answer your previous question, yeah. have not written anything as such yet. Maybe right. when I, think when I grow older, yeah. I might even try to, you know, okay. I might, might look, uh, try to uh, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I asked you, Pala, because that's a really interesting answer. But uh, moving on to um, your latest book, which leads on quite neatly, I think, from what we're talking about. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the book, uh, Civil Society in the, in the Global South. Um, it's uh, published by, by Routledge. Um, yeah, how does this pull together the things that we've just been talking about, I suppose? This, this again, like, you know, this also, like, you know, again, drives the, like, you know, the brings forward the um, politics of knowledge building. So my PhD, one of the component of my PhD was civil society, like you know, the civil society's participation in a policy making of a particular country. Mm. And I became aware that you know, the civil society accounts, civil society, the notion of civil society itself is a Western value. Mm. It's led by Western value. The way we understand civil society, even from Marx or Hegelian perspective, that anything in between family and state should be considered a civil society. So there will be many informal organizations, associations, cooperate groups, cooperative groups, like you know, those could have the traditional values and those could be present in many forms. Those are not good fit for the Western values. What has happened in the meantime, after the after the like, you know, let's say after the demise of Cold War, that many Western countries, especially the donor organizations, they try to promote democracy in those places where they don't have this democracy have democracy so civil society became a vehicle for promoting promoting democracy and along the way what these donor agencies mainly have done they have tried to support civil society organizations in non-western countries mainly through the ngos so they actually in my word that manufactured civil society 
And that is fundamentally different from the notion of having a civil society that is like you know, quite flexible, that is quite loose, because that's the essence of community. Like I was talking the way I, I grew up, because when you just like, you know, cook something and give some food to your next door neighbor, or when you like to you know, feed someone hungry or vulnerable without expecting anything. Because when I was growing up, for example, there was flooding everywhere. In Bangladesh, like it was flood prone country at, at that time. So if you know about bamboo, right, you know, so people like, you know, I mean, my older brothers, let's say, like you know, my older peers, they were like, you know, doing the voluntary work and creating bridges made of bamboos so that people can just cross different roads. People can go to like the schools or like in you know, hospitals and places like that. That is a demonstration like in you know, what informal voluntary works can do at a time of need. The research I'm doing at this moment, for example, is about Rohingya refugees. And before state intervened or before the international community intervened, it was again the everyday people who went to the rescue of Rohingyas because they were like you know, unfed, they were exhausted. So these were the first people who went with food and shelter and quills and some basic needs. That's the essence of civil society in many different ways. So this book, Civil Society in the Global South is a collection of civil society from 13 different countries across the world from all different continents. These books are written, this book, the chapters of this book are written by scholars from Global South. I wanted to see if knowledge is produced by colleagues from Global South who are perfectly capable of producing their own knowledge. Would the civil state accounts be any look any different? It's not like you know, I'm challenging that you know what is existing knowledge is fundamentally wrong, but argument is like you know many values, many forms of civil society in non-Western countries might not be a great fit the way when we look civil society through the Western lens and Western values, so that these people who are perfectly capable of producing their own knowledge this knowledge can actually complement what we understand so that we have a fuller picture rather than a partial picture of civil society and that would potentially help in understanding the the what what we say about like the global development because if civil society have the power to mobilize and make positive changes we really need to understand what people down there understand or think about civil society for themselves Okay, that's a really, again, that's a fantastic answer. Um, my, my my research territory is community radio, funny enough, so I'm quite so I'm quite interested in community, and I don't know whether you've come across a German uh, philosopher, I think from the 18th century, called Ferdinand Tonnies. Hardly, vaguely okay. heard of the name. So he talks about what's interesting about it. He talks about this kind of, if you like, almost like um, a hierarchical battle between community sort of with and also kind of against society so society sort of imposes down on community mm -hmm. in, in that model and i suppose what you're uh, largely trying to do is create some equilibrium and allow the community to reclaim ownership of its kind of uh, future i suppose would that be reasonable well, this would be reasonable and i would like to just add it is not reasonable i think that is a very good interpretation of like what i'm trying to do but also if you look at like you know when, what we are talking about decolonizing our education yes yes it's just like it perfectly fits on that on that idea like you know yes. if we do not know like if we keep producing knowledge from a colonial perspective 
that somebody is claiming they know about civil society of X country, for example, in Malawi or Nigeria, or like, you know, let's say Papua New Guinea, or even Bangladesh or Nepal, right? It's because like, you know, somebody went there for three months, field trip, maybe even shorter, or maybe slightly longer as for their like, you know, um, PhD field trip. Maybe they have research experience of 10 years. And so they have like, you know, went there for a few weeks and then came back and went there for a few weeks. But the understanding of social reality, like if I can bring like you know, Clifford Gears, you know, Clifford Gears will be saying like, you know, look, the purpose of social science is to unravel the layers of reality, what is what exists in, in different societies, right? Mm. So to understand the deeper perspective, deeper notion, the symbolism, various symbol, symbols of meanings of different layers of different societies, it is important that we also let people know and tell how they feel and they understand about their knowledge, right? If we keep writing, writing and writing about knowledge or keep building knowledge from this part of the world, and you can see like this is a structural issue. And I would like to emphasize that in this is a structural issue because mostly the, all the top ranking universities are based in the West. All the bigger publications are based in the West. All the journals are based in the Western countries. All the journal editors are the same because there is an aura of superiority that we know better than you. We can, we are perfectly capable of like, you know, doing knowledge, producing knowledge about you, which probably undermines the understanding, the notion of decolonization, what we are talking in terms of curriculum, in terms of education. I emphasize and I repeat, I'm not saying that, look, it is wrong. My view is like, you know, if we let them flourish and write and produce, that will probably give another perspective of knowledge that would only enhance our understanding of the subject matter. Okay, I'm aware of you know we, we, um, of time a little bit in terms of I, I don't want to be over long in this because I want for a really good reason that I want people to buy into what you're saying. So um, I don't know whether you, you could you give me a, a brief response to this. Um, the idea of the kind of the white savior, you know, that, that kind of idea that you know the the the, the um, the white people have come to save the day sort of thing and maybe doing it for all you know in, in lots of senses for, for 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 very good reasons perhaps um i don't know what your take is on that you know have you come across that i guess you must have done you kind of come across it quite a bit i imagine i imagine yeah i mean i do not think i mean this is a very very interesting question i do not want to create a dichotomy and i do not yeah, think yeah. a dichotomy would be useful that you know all white men are bad or all, all white yeah, sure. initiatives are bad yeah. It shouldn't be like this. Yeah. In my subject area, let's say global development, and even there is a, like a great book which called White Men's Burden, as if like it is white men's burden to rescue the rest of the world. It is not, right? Yeah. And then like, you know, my understanding should be that you know, we need to think from a like a historical perspective. My work on poverty, and I'm sure like, you know, I echo, I contribute to many, many other many of my predecessors who say like, you know, poverty, is man-made. It is an outcome of this structural inequality. It's not that some people are just born poor, right? Yeah, sure. So the case is like in you know, all these non-Western countries, those are labeled as underdeveloped or developing countries or many other different labelings, right? Yeah. It's not that they have been always like these. Mm. There, there are like you know, brutal histories of colonialism. They were under different colonies. They have suffered um, from many different interventions, often by these previous past colonizers, unfortunately, that includes like you know, the Europe, 
All right. So obviously there is a sense of guilt that we have ruined those countries in many different ways. Hmm. So the idea is like, you know, that it is not that your responsibility, it is also like, you know, trying to make a justice that, you know, they, it is a recognition that it is a responsibility for whole world because it's like COVID, like you know, if if not everybody is vaccinated, if you see the like you know, COVID nationalism, right? The rich countries are like, you know, they're making their population vaccinated quite in, in a staggering manner, yeah. where majority, almost entire population of many different developing countries are not getting vaccinated, right? Mm. In a globalized world, it would be like, you know, it would be like in you know, a fool's paradise. We'll be living in fool's paradise if we think we are vaccinated and we are safe. The all different new variants are like, you know, talking about this, right? We need to make sure that, you know, we are all safe so that we can go back to some form of previous normality. Exactly in the same way, the way aid is given to rescue within court the developing countries or to improve the livelihoods of many poor people, it can be seen in a good way. Of course, many of those aid do actually help. And that is why I think like, you know, it would be quite a wrong approach to say like you know, anything the white people do are bad. Mm. It is not like that. Yeah. Obviously, the Europe did some damage to many of these countries. Obviously, the relationship of like a you know, current trade relationship is exploitative. They exploit the Western countries, exploit the like, you know, the um, non-Western countries. But at the same time, the aid, whatever amount of aid go to the like, you know, different countries, it saved lives in many different ways. It allows some of the poor children to go to schools. It provides water to some people who need water. It provides some basic vaccination or like healthcare facilities. But I think we could do better, do better in a way that, you know, we could understand that, you know, aid cannot go with conditionality. We cannot tell them how to develop because almost every time aid goes with conditionalities that, you know, in order to yeah. get this aid, you need to do this and this yeah. change. Yeah. Again, that changes and that conditionalities actually might help only primarily the elites of those countries who are becoming a transnational elite. Meaning that what I said at the beginning, that this is not helping the poor people for whom this help is meant to be. Right. At least we say that you know, these are going for those people. We need to nurture the local ideas because for Bangladesh again, Bangladesh is now talking about people claim, or some people at least, this is like, you know, say that, you know, it is a moderately success story. There is a caution there because Bangladesh got independence in 1971. So it's a country very young. It was war ravaged. There was 200 years of colonial past, and then it was under the Pakistan and for current Pakistan for 23 or some I mean, it's good few years. So this country was you know, severely like, you know, severely damaged in many ways. Economy was like, you know, absolutely like, you know, damaged, ruined. So there was a label some people said, and I think this is the Foreign Secretary of United States, one of the former Foreign Secretaries who said Bangladesh is like, you know, a basket case of development. So whatever you put, everything is like, you know, goes like, you know, down, down, right? It doesn't work because the population is huge. What can you do? Yeah. Against all odds, Bangladesh have made some like you know, great success. Bangladesh is now the second largest exporter of the ready-made garment industry. Bangladesh is one of the leading countries that earn the foreign remittances, right? You'll see that the vaccination rates, the like you know, girls' education, female education, everything is staggering in compared to staggering in many ways, especially in compared to South Asian countries. 
my point to your audience and everybody else is like, you know, none of these were the conditions or the prescriptions of the donors. Bangladesh has come this far. If you see, like and I said, foreign remittance, it is the agency of the people who were struggling in their life. And you can see Bangladeshi people working hard everywhere on, the, on this planet and sending, saving their salary and sending, sending this remittance back to their families so that they can have a decent living. That's why the economy is now in a good, good health. Economy is in, like, in a good position. This was not a donor recipe. Garments, this was not a donor recipe, but again, garments, how it flourished because there was a, like an you know, untapped sources of like in labor force, for example, women. If you ever know like you know, a Bangladeshi garments worker probably get vaguely saying roughly they receive like you know, um, some probably 80 pounds equivalent of salary. So 80 pounds per month from dawn to dusk pretty much work is extremely, extremely laborious, right? Mm -hmm. But that 80 pound is much better than doing nothing. Previously, all these huge female workforce were unemployed or doing nothing. Now they have work in garment industry. They're working, contributing to their family. As a result, Bangladesh has like an economy is booming in many different ways. Okay. And again, this was not a donor recipe. So the, this, these are some good examples that you know, if we could tap the local ideas, local possibilities, local avenues, what can be done in a way to improve that particular country. The way Bangladesh has progressed, I'm not saying become developed, the way Bangladesh has progressed might not be the recipe for Mexico. Mexico is like a better, 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 um, better country in many different ways, less than Nigeria, or like in you know, Malawi, or Vantau, or like in you know, other poor countries. They will have to find their own way. So the white men, if they want to be savior through their small amount of aid, they need to nurture these local understandings and ideas. Okay. In short, I will never say that anything white men do are bad, but there are so many differences. There are so many limitations. Things could do much better. And I must include that in you know, the trading relationship, globalization, the benefit of globalization need to be distributed in a more equal manner if we really mean good. Otherwise, we'll have to face that critique that you cannot just play the white savior thing. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, could you talk a little bit about your um, USW funded project and your your research uh, on expertise that you've done fairly recently? Sure. Um, it is like, you know, so I've got two projects at this meet. One, I was talking about the um, refugees and internally displaced people in Bangladesh and Afghanistan. That is funded by British Academy. The other small funded, small um, pilot study I'm doing is about like, you know, expertise. That is similar to my book of global and civil set in the global south. So throughout my work experience, before I started my PhD, I was working in a couple of donor funded projects where we had experts from UK because I was funded like I was working with UK funded projects. And obviously, like um, I could see that, you know, there are like you know, they, they, these experts come with great skills in terms of project management because they have a, like a you know, global universal understanding how to manage the project. How could they like you know, show the results? So there are some technicalities they, technicalities they were like you know, very, very good at. I must acknowledge that first of all. But in terms of, let's say, for understanding local context to implement a particular technology, let's say, among the farmers, they really need, needed to understand the local context, the way farmers behave, or whether they're receptive of new technology or not. 
So I was working with Syngenta Bangladesh Limited, one of the leading multinational agribusiness company in the whole entire world. And you could see like, you know, okay, Syngenta is well-placed to introduce a new technology to the farmers. But in Bangladesh, there was a like, you know, what you call mid-level, like, you know, what you call the um, pesticide dealers who were acting like the insect doctors. So the farmer's first point of call was those pesticide dealers. Hmm. And they were totally excluded from the project. Right. My understanding was like, you know, that again, the intention is great, but there is a lacking of like you know, cultural knowledge, which is bespoke of that particular country. It could be different in other countries. Hmm. Over the years after my PhD, I was working in other projects and I could see like you know, every time the preference was for the white experts because they look good, put it simply, they look good. They bring some like you know, credential to the donors, right? they bring some credentials to the prime ministers of those countries as well, because it would be difficult for people like me to get a like, you know, not me myself probably, but many other like, you know, national experts who will be struggling to get an appointment to the policymakers, to the ministers or the prime ministers. But when you have a white consultant, it seems to have become easier to get an appointment. Yeah, That's yeah. the like culture of international aid, right? And international development. Again, I was arguing in my, or I'm arguing in my project that look, if we, because there is a genre of like no literature that calls aid ethnography. Aid ethnography is a reflexive trend where people are saying, look, I have worked for work in Nigeria for 20 years. And now that I look back, I think, ah, many things are wrong there. I could have done things differently. And I'm saying like, well, that is very good ethnography, but that is partial because it seems replicating the colonial ethnography when you were like in a colonial master of these countries, went to these countries to to develop them. Yeah. And then in the meantime, these countries have got independence. Many of these experts from these countries have gone to many like you know, higher, like in you know, world-class universities, learned the knack of project management themselves, and they're perfectly capable of writing their own ethnography. So when ethnography, we talk about ethnography as a research method, it needs to be holistic. So partial ethnography is giving me like a you know, partial perspective. Would it not be nice to have a holistic perspective where we have the views from you as international experts, as well as from the experts who are coming from those respective countries so that we could see like, you know, what sort of relationship and experiences they have gone through. How difficult it was for them to have all the qualities, but even to reach the policymaker. How difficult it was for them to gain external research income from outside. How difficult it was for them to get a promotion how difficult it was for them to write the, to be the first author of any publication. All these needed to be known so that we could have a like a comprehensive picture if we really want to make the aid sector more functional and more effective. So that's my project in Ghana and Bangladesh, where I have interviewed 25 respondents, 25 local experts for each country. Mm. An article has just published it is based on my first article when I introduced this idea, National Development Experts in Development Policy Review. So a follow-up article has got published in Third World Quarterly and the title is good. The title is good because I included a quotation from one of my respondents who were telling me, look, mate, the fact of the reality is in this process, we do all the donkey work, but they take all the glory, yeah. which indicates like you know, the relationship that currently exists. Tell me, what, what was the title again? We do all the donkey work <laughs> and they take the glory. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, so um, 
you're currently working on another project uh, which is uh, funded by the British Academy to do with displacement. Yes. So could you tell us a bit, bit about that, Palash, please? Yeah, I mean, this was like, this is this is fascinating again. Um, displaced people are, what do you call, seem to be like, you know, excluded from everywhere. These are the like, you know, what do you call, the, the people who are in a miserable situation, mainly, mostly for no fault of their own. They have not created this displacement for themselves. They are being displaced for many reasons, including violence, including like state violence or including non-state violence. It could be natural disaster, failure of their own government and many different ways. Two of the largest population, displaced population of current world represent the Rohingya refugees who are being like, you know, persecuted by their own government in Myanmar and Bangladesh hosts the majority of them, nearly a million Rohingyas. The other one is like, you know, internally displaced people in Afghanistan. The country is, you know, experiencing struggles and wars and fights for like, you know, good few decades. I think as long as I am alive, the country is facing like, you know, war and violence there. So it was an opportunity to team up with two senior colleagues at the university, Professor Ali Wardak from Afghanistan, who is, who, is, who is with us. It's a great opportunity. And Professor Kate Williams, who is also highly knowledgeable and work on like in many aspects of policy and like in legal justice. So I teamed up with this. I teamed up with Professor Kate Williams and Professor Ali Wardak, and we submitted a bid to understand the experience of violence among the Rohingyas and the internally displaced people in Afghanistan. And like I said, like, you know, mostly these displaced people are looked as a burden. You know, they're treated as a burden. You know, they're treated as migrants even in their own communities. They're like, you know, as it seems like, you know, they have no place there. But like I said, the emphasis is like, you know, it's not their fault they're displaced. Among the way, I know many stories where like, you know, somebody was having a luxurious life and all of a sudden they have become displaced. Mm. What they have lost along the way is their dignity. Philosophically, dignity is a great concept. We talk about everyone has that right of dignity. Mm -hmm. Everyone deserves to have a dignified life. It is ushered in many international charter, but that is not the case when it comes for displacement people, displaced people, yeah. and the policy solutions. When you think of like, you know, how can we make so, make you know repatriation or like you know, um, relocation, whatever solutions we think of. We do not think of that dignity as if like, you know, we can just do whatever we can. OK, so we are giving you a house. That's enough because you were displaced. You have no place to go, but we are giving you a shelter and that shelter may not be dignified. That shelter, that relocation might not be consistent and coherent with their cultural, social and even family or religious values, which will mean that, you know, they will have an undignified life. So this project, we are trying to understand, again, not from the armchairist perspective, not a theoretical perspective that you know, I am creating a theory of dignity. We are trying to understand how these people perceive dignity, okay. what dignity means for them. What might be dignity for like, you know, Afghan in IDPs might not be in dignity for like you know, the Rohingyas. Because they're both representing Muslim groups, there might be some similarities, but that may, may not be same for dignity um, displaced people in Venezuela, right? Even the Colombia has granted like, you know, some extraordinary gesture, like you know, a great amount of Venezuelan people, displaced people, but the, obviously the notion might, might be different. Yes. So we are trying to make, make a case that look, dignity is context specific, bespoke, but more importantly, when you think of great policies like this, because these represent like you know, a huge number of people, 
when you talk about solution for conflict and displacement, it needs to be bear in mind that you know, we really take into consideration what dignity means for these people. And that is what we are trying to do, to bring forward the voices to their ex experience they have in terms of like you know, horrible violences, right? The trauma, it can trauma, I mean, it has traumatized me in many different ways. Every time I read their like in you know, a transcript, every time I spoke to like you know, some people, I cried. I mean, I am publicly saying I cried because you can't do anything else, you know? This is some this has something happened happened with these people. And I feel incredibly privileged that it's not my wife, my daughter, who yeah. is living in those in those shelters. Sure. It's not my father who is going unfed. It's not my mother who is standing in the queue just to get a mere bare minimum of like a food aid. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Right? Mm. So that's how I feel that and it is very important that we bring this perspective to this project. And we are finalizing this project very soon. Fingers crossed. We'll be able to do some justice to our research. Yeah, I, I was actually I was interviewing recently um, uh, somebody in the NHS in the UK who's who's also um, a, a, a fantastic um, photographer, and he managed to capture um, the pandemic from the perspective of the staff uh, during during the crisis, and that that also uh, made me extremely emotional. It's when you when you see people you see things from other people's perspective. Sometimes as a human being, it, it just really, really hits you. Um, and you, you, which leads us on to uh, another topic, which is, and uh, I will also, if you like, by the way, Palash, share your interview uh, as part as part of this, which we've done on the uh, displacement theme. And I want to come back to displacement slightly again at the end as well. But your latest work on extreme poverty and global development goals, which again, um, you know, the word extreme, in the, you know, uh, it's just a word, but in this case, it really means something. Yeah, I mean, this is something like you know, in international development. If you look at like the you know, sustainable development goals, it is seems like it's all embracing everybody in the academia and within the practice practicing community, trying to fit their work with sustainable development goals. The first goal is eradicate ending poverty, right? And the first target of the first goal is to like you know, eradicate extreme poverty by 2030 everywhere in all places i was talking about poverty that you know poverty is not like in anybody's fault you know it's a structural issue in terms of academia there are many different notions of poverty there are absolute notion of poverty there are like relative poverty and there are like an income poverty there are non-income poverty and this notion of extreme poverty hit me hard in many ways because this the threshold is very low so extreme poverty currently is defined as in terms of if you go to UN page and you see like you know, there are like you know, some some like you know, some miscommunications, there are some discrepancies like in here and there. So if you go to the UN Sustainable De Development Goals page, it will tell you that in you know, extreme poverty is measured in $1.25 a day. So anybody's income less than $1.25 a day should be counted as an extreme poor. And World Bank, they have suggested revise the threshold of extreme poverty, which calls $1.90 a day. So that's the like a benchmark for extreme poverty. The reason I said like I wanted to do PhD in social policy to include the perspective of like you know, other social scientific interdisciplinary perspective, it is a fundamentally econometric, econometric perspective. I could just test with you, do you know or until today, if you knew that this measure was not based on exchange value of dollar? I have over the years asked my students who are not economists, 
So I studied, I taught like in you know, international development, I taught sociology, I taught like in you know, social policy in this university. So every time I tell my students and many colleagues, and including I interviewed some ministers, that do you actually know that, you know, the, what would be the value? Every time, and I emphasize every time, people were thinking this is based on exchange, exchange value of the US dollar. But fundamentally, this is not the case. Hmm. The value, the $1.90 or $1.25, the value is measured in purchasing power parity for econometric reason, like you know, that this US dollar, 1.25 or 1.90 US dollar, should have like you know, similar purchasing capacity in all the world, in Bangladesh, in Nigeria, in Malawi, in Bolivia, in all other countries, right? So that's why this purchasing parity value comes in, meaning that it almost make it half of the like threshold. For example, in Bangladesh case, if I say $1 is equivalent of like, you know, 80 taka, for example, Bangladesh is like, you know, currency is taka. So meaning that it will be pretty much 150 taka as like a you know, $1.90 day income. So anybody's income less than 150 taka will be extreme poor. Simply speaking, if you use, you have to use, it's not that if you use, you have to use because that's how extreme poverty is measured. When you use the purchasing power parity value, it becomes 80 taka. So it becomes almost half. So you might think that, okay, my income 80 taka, I'm poor because anybody less than anybody's income less than 150 should be like an extreme pool but no the threshold goes even down what struck me then i tried to take this back to the perceived poor people so some of the poor like you know let's say the people who are like you know who pool rickshaw people who are like you know, who even beg in bangladesh like in you know, everyday like you know, who even beg in bangladesh and in other countries like in you know, Ghana and Nigeria, I've spoken to like you know, extreme poor people themselves. And I said, okay, this is the amount, that's it, that is the benchmark. Can you actually survive with 80 taka or 85 taka per day income? Is it really survivable? So my argument in this art, in that, in that research is that the threshold is so low, the intention that a simple measure, $1 a day, it was like you know, initially, um, would do good, would create greater awareness is fundamentally flawed. Because what we have done, we have kept the threshold very, very low, which is unrealistic for absolute basic survival. I am well aware of like, you know, different concepts of multidimensional poverty, relative poverty and everything else. But extreme poverty, you need to have something so that at least you can eat two meals. So I asked people whether not luxurious foods, can you just have absolute basic meals with this food? And the response every time was, it is impossible. Mm. And that is my argument to say, look, what are we trying to do? We are trying to eradicate poverty. But if this is not suitable to the understanding of the poor people themselves, then what's the point of eradicating this? And what's the point of claiming this success? So what we have now is sustainable development goals. Sustainable development goals are built from the previous global development goals, namely Millennium Development Goals. And people, mostly United, United Nations people and the global leaders and the celebrities you see, they say like you know, the world has halved the extreme poor people. What is the point of making this a statistical success when people's lives are not changed? Meaning that if, you're, if your income is $2 a day, you are not poor. And when your income is $1.85 a day, you are poor. But people who are $2, earning $2 a day, 
is still very, very poor. It's just like you know, you're slightly above the threshold. Poverty does not, family life, social life does not happen in this way that you know, I spend every penny in a calculative way. I have a child. If my daughter asks something, for example, let's say I eat, we eat as a family lentils and rice every week or every day, every meal. What would I do as a parent when my daughter wants to eat fish or meat? Can I live a life based on calculation of $1.90 a day or not? That's the kind of understanding I think global development, the architects of world and global development should take. And again, I think the benchmark should be contextual. The benchmark should be consistent with the understanding of the poor people themselves. That's the research I'm doing at this moment. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to, I'm, excuse, excuse the pun, I'm going to have to digest all this information at some point. Um, coming back to um, the, I suppose, mostly what you said about displacement was interesting. I mean, we're heading for Refugee Week, you know, 2021, the University of South Wales, as you know, with, with some colleagues who you know, such as Dr. Mark Chick and Barry Flewellen, these kind of people heavily, heavily involved in it. Um, what was your kind of perception of the importance of Refugee Week as uh, a means of generating awareness of, of, of the issues that you've talked about at some length today? And also the, the key point of what you're making about people who are displaced, you know, that they did not choose to be displaced. And the fact that quite often when they come, certainly to countries like, like the UK, from, 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 from what I can understand, are given like the minimum uh, of, of of support and are seen by some in the powers of be at a government level to be a burden in fact on the state you know uh, using the uk as example but i mean in the west if you like what's your kind of perception on that how how does refugee week help if it does to break it down? does it does help in a like in a great way and i am grateful to the university and to my colleagues like you know, Mike Chick and Barry, they're doing amazing work. This shows that you know, what theory and practice, combination of theory and practice can do. In one way, we are producing theoretical knowledge. In other way, it is important that we implement, we try to relate our, apply our theoretical knowledge into practice. Mm -hmm. So if we just keep talking the talk and don't walk the walk, yes. I think I'm using a, like a British phrase here. Yes. So that, that makes us look what you call a little hypocritical. Yeah. So I think it is extremely important that you know we just do not talk the talk, we also walk the walk. And as a university, we are doing it. And that is extremely, extremely important for me. And personally, I am immensely grateful. It shows the level of great level of gesture that you know we treat them as individual human beings rather than as a burden, as you said, right? Hmm. And if that creates some level of awareness, I would think like you know, this will be a huge achievement especially in the context of populist narratives, those are gaining like in a huge, huge like in you know, a mileage these days, right? So this is a fight. And I see this is a fight because you have on the one hand, one narrative that, you know, we are suffering. We are like, you know, our economy is like, you know, what do you call um, suffering? We are the victim of like, you know, this um, pandemic and all these things. We cannot help other people, but that is not truth. Um, in other interviews, I was saying, like, you know, look, the UK aid cut is a huge issue, right? Yeah. So UK government as a whole, what they're trying to propose or what they're trying to save is like, you know, just three billion pounds. I'm not I'm not a rich guy. I understand three billion pounds is a huge money, right? But in terms of government, three, three billion pounds is not huge money. 
So what we are trying to say, my argument is like you know, what we are trying to say by cutting aid is actually, and I say in caps lock if possible, much less, much less than the corruption that has happened to handle in the in terms of COVID pandemic by this government in this country. The way procurement deals have been given, there are like a huge amount of like you know, mismanage of the mismanagement of the budget. Yeah. As a taxpayer, if I need to counter the populist narratives in this way, like how can you say this, like you know that we can save these people when we are struggling, I think it is also within our right to question accountability and demand accountability about this corruption and mismanagement of the budget, which is way bigger than the eight cut. The ultimate victim of this will be like you know, British, British people and humanity because British people, British government will lose its leadership about humanitarian action. Similarly, international development, again, I bring this perspective. Many people give aid to the poor countries, let's say in Afghanistan or Pakistan or places like this. Why? Because if we cannot keep those people there, if we cannot give like you know, some form of income generation activities, they will come here and become terrorists or do like you know, create unrest to our society, right? Or cause problems to our society. So you see, if we do not do the right thing, if we do not do the like, you know, do not help people at this very time of need and let our corruption just go like you know, unaccountable, then what we are trying to do, we are trying to create spaces. We are trying to create easy journeys for people who will make risky journeys and die in the Mediterranean. We need to ask to counter the populist narrative, is that what we want to do? If that is not what we want to do, we need to show the generosity to the refugees that you know, we stand by them because by doing that, we are saying that you know, we stand against injustice. And you have seen in many different ways that refugees are trying to give back to the society. They're popping up, popping up, creating like you know, what you call the food for the like you know, refugees, giving food to the homeless people. They're trying to bring some cultural perspective. They're doing photographies of this beautiful part of the world and trying to show they're becoming ambassadors of this country and this part of the world. And they're showing the good thing we do. And I think this this cannot be measured in billion pounds, to be honest. That's that's why I think it's extremely important. And I repeat that I'm personally extremely grateful for the university and my colleagues who are promoting this. So, Palash, um, thank you very much. Great conversation. Really, really good to speak to you. And, you know, as one human being to another, I just totally hope that through what you do, you help get that message across. Thank you so very much. I will try my best to live up to that expectation. That's a huge expectation anyway. It's easy to say, but difficult to do. So yes, it's very best. difficult to do, but yeah. Good luck with it anyway. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks a lot. Create.